Hello, welcome to the ninth episode of Wildfire Matters, the podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. We talk with the people who help manage and protect our public lands, many dedicating their lives to the profession. Today, Jennifer and I are talking with Phil Wind, base manager for the Great Basin Smoke Jumper Program located at the National Interagency Fire Center. Welcome, Phil. Welcome, Phil. Thank you very much. So just a little background for those who may not know a lot about smoke jumping or smoke jumpers, which Phil will get into later, but um, smoke jumpers are basically experienced wildland firefighters who fly to fires via airplane and parachute as closely as they can to a fire, which I think is a little crazy, but Phil can expand on that (laughs) later. He might change our minds. Yes. And they get to remote fire safely and quickly, helping high-risk uh, fire stay small. So that's key um, with their program into those remote areas that maybe we can't get a helicopter or uh, or an engine to quickly. So um, they're key to our fire program. And actually it started back in 1939. Uh, first jump occurred in 1940 on the Nez Perce National Forest in Idaho. And today we have about 400, 450 smoke jumpers across the U.S., uh, nine smoke jumper bases. And two of them are BLM, one located here in Boise, Idaho, which is the one that Phil manages, and the other in Alaska, and then the other seven are Forest Service. But um, we'd like to have Phil here with us to tell us a little bit more about his career, and we'll just get started. Phil, yeah, how did, how did you get started in Wild on Fire? Well, first, let me say you nailed it. You got all the facts straight. You could have thrown in Rufus Robinson from Kuski, Idaho. Oh, I didn't have And Earl that. Cooley as the first two gentlemen oh, that nice. jumped that first fire. Nice. Yeah. Um, how I got started in fire. Ooh. I was going to college at the University of Wisconsin for engineering. I was in my third year and did an internship or a limited term employment with the state of Wisconsin. And after a summer of that, it was really clear I'm not feeling very satisfied with that. I need to try something different. And when you're young and impetuous, I'm like, okay, I'll just drop out and look for a new job and kind of wandered around town for about two months. <laughs> um, read a lot of great books and stuff and was uh, playing the role of a bum. But then it dawned on me, well, you know, you're having that existential. What am I going to do with my life? You're, you're young. You think everything really matters a lot. And I th- landed on public service. So let's try to find a job where you're helping people out. And uh, so I thought about police officer and... You know, growing up in Wisconsin, wildland fire is not really on the tip of everyone's tongue. There's some of it in northern Wisconsin. I was in southern Wisconsin, so not a not a first to mind, but fire seemed pretty cool, becoming a firefighter. So I went to a fire academy and learned how to fight structure fire and became an EMT. There weren't a lot of jobs immediately, so someone recommended you should maybe try flying out west to wildland fire. That might be a good introduction to fire and look good on a resume. Um, back then, you submitted paper applications. <laughs> I think I we talked those about too, all yeah. those. Yeah, I think mine was that way too. Yeah, and it was a paper application for every individual place you wanted to work. So it was upwards of 150 plus I sent in. I got two replies. <laughs> one was from the BLM in Las Vegas, and one was from the Forest Service in Montana. Uh, Montana sounded pretty cool, you know, big mountains. I didn't know what was going down there in Vegas. It sounded like a city. So had you ever been out west before? No. No, actually, I'd only been like Canada and in the Midwest. Right. So I left there, and I took a train with everything I owned and two two or three, duff, three duffel bags that you got at the Army surplus store. 
and landed in Libby, Montana, and had a job on the Trout Creek Ranger District on the Kootenay National Forest, uh, right by the Cabinet Wilderness. And my boss came to Libby and picked me up. And uh, that first day in Libby, I got out of the, I stayed at a hotel, spending about a third of the money I still had, and uh, got up that morning and went for a walk, and there's like 15 or 20 deer. And I came back and told the receptionist all about it at the hotel, and she's just looking at me like, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of them out here, you know. Was that the first deer you've ever seen? No, there's oh, okay. plenty of deer in Wisconsin, gotcha, okay. but the fact that you could just walk in there, like they were everywhere. just right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool, and definitely fell in love with the nature aspect. And the uh, Trout Creek Ranger District had a bunkhouse, and you stayed there with a lot of people of your own age. Um, and they were not just in fire; there was men and women in in wreck in the watersheds, um, biologists and stuff like that. And we were all you know, kind of progressing through the early portions of our career, and it was fantastic. Great. So what did yeah. you do at first for fire? I was on an engine on the Kootenay, and up there in the Cabinet Ranger District or in the Cabinet Wilderness, it was rare we got anywhere near that fire. We'd drive that engine up some mountain road, park it, and hike 7, 10 miles in, sleep on the fire, and it was like perfect introduction to fighting fire. So I was an engine crew member there. And then worked your way up. Yeah, yeah. Well, at that point in my life, again, being young and wanting to see more things, that was the whole objective for the next season. Want to work someplace new. So I went to an engine in Colorado. Now I'm at a guard station at 9,000 feet and working <laughs> just with another young person um, on a smaller engine, but great autonomy. You know, our boss was, this is a long time ago before, you know, our carding mechanisms were in place. And he got a job in rec and he basically looked at us and, and granted us, he's like, you're an engine boss and you're an engine <laughs> boss. And these two 20, 20 year old like, people okay. are out there. You're like, already then. Leading themselves. Yeah. And then ended up on a helicopter in Boise uh, through a connection. And that was super impressive to get to the fire by air. I was hooked for sure. Just all that intel you gather right away. And the people on the helitack after several years of that were like, well, you might want to mix it up and try hot shotting. So I got on the Hot Shots in Garden Valley, Idaho, for the Boise Hot Shots. And um, at that point, there was, I, there was no going back. I was a wildland firefighter for a career. So was, how many years is that going in at this point? At this point, um, I'm at like uh, two years on the engine, three years on the helicopter, get into the shotting. Yeah, and spent three years there with the shots. Yeah, that's a drastic change from Wisconsin to Libby, Montana. It sure, sure was. Yeah, it sure was. Big mountains so many trees and kind of went from an, an agrarian community to uh, yeah to the vast open spaces yeah. Yeah. yeah so how did you transition then from becoming a from being a hotshot to becoming a smoke jumper I'd say while I was on health attack I really got to um, appreciate arriving to the fire by air like I say, you gather that situational awareness, you, you're just mapping everything out. You know what that whole fire looks like. You know your means of egress, you know the roads that are leading to the potential water sources nearby, um, things that might be threatened, values at risk and stuff. And it's like, I want to get in the air. And it seemed like that was the next logical step. So nobody told you about it or anything before? As a matter of fact, I was more or less discouraged. You know, my hotshot <laughs> superintendents weren't really, they're not, they weren't super keen on jumping. They weren't interested in themselves. Oh. Um, so they were like, well, if you give me two good years, two, three good years, then we'll let you apply to smoke jump. <laughs> we'll let you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll Thanks. let you go. And uh, it was good. It was, 
you know, no one, nothing's going to make you a better firefighter than doing all of that stuff collectively. So it's good that I spent some time doing each one of them, yeah. in my opinion. Kind of gave uh, you something to, to work for then. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I didn't okay. want to kind of repeat what I had done, was trying to look forward. Um, back then, you, people really didn't talk about career seasonals. You figured you'd be a temp for 10, 15, 20 years. You never yeah. really even gave it much <laughs> thought. Yeah. So it was more about, well, what's the next challenge? What, what's going to be the next cool thing to do? Awesome. So how how hard was it though? What like the difference between being a hotshot and smoke jumper and just like getting into the program? Yeah. Um, so let me see if I can answer that a couple of ways. So how, the, how hard it is is like <laughs> you all know, hotshot is a grind. It right. is just a grind, yeah. and smoke jumper is a surge. So I had to re pivot to coming into jumping with all the strength that I would do for 21 days and do it in two or three days. So I had to get stronger physically. Um, you know, my hotshot superintendent, Randy Skelton at the time, he gave us an assignment on a mop-up shift. He's like, I want you all to think what it takes to be a good hotshot. So I'm, you know, I'm digging all day. Oh, man, I got to get a good answer to this one. And I come out with this, you know, uh, loquacious, overly <laughs> worded answer, and he's just shaking his head, and he's like, it takes one thing, and that's heart. And I'd say that's what you got to tap into to get into the smoke jumping, to be successful in that rookie training, is you got to make sure your heart's in the right place. This is the most important thing to you for that moment in time and apply that. Um, the skills that you learn on an engine, that you learn as a helitech, that you learn as a hotshot, you'll have them. If you got five, seven years as a wildland fire, you got all the skills you need. We'll show you how to do it as a smoke jumper, but you got to come in with heart and you got to be committed to it. Um, you know, we tell all of that to our candidates. We spend a lot of energy trying to prepare them mentally. Like, don't come in trying to buy a house. Don't come in with any problems at home. Don't come in with other things on your plate. Because for that, sh that period of time, five, six weeks, it needs to be number one. So is that what it is, like uh, the rookie training is about five, six weeks? Yep. Yep. Depending on, uh, you know, basically weather. That first oh, week, oh, we're yeah. going to go out in the woods and we're going to say, okay, you, you all know how to fight fire? This is how you fight fire as a smoke jumper. This is why it's so important that you know what you're doing because you're going to be operating independently. You used to cut with a chainsaw and have a couple people picking sticks up for you. Now you're going to cut with a chainsaw and pick them up yourself. You used to have people bring water to you when you got thirsty. Now you're going to carry five gallons of water on your back, stuff like that. So that first week, you learn how to be a smoke jumper firefighter, and then you go out to our units and you learn what to do in the event of emergency. They're few and far between, super rare, but you're going to show us that you can develop the muscle memory um, to, to operate when you have a malfunction under a canopy. And then the subsequent weeks are learning to fly a parachute, and you start, it's incremental, you start in the you know, most benign spots with basic, basically, you know, um, radio controlled over the radio by your trainers and then by the end you are jumping the most challenging spots you'll probably see so how many jumps is that then it can vary um when you talk to folks that i learned underneath they're like we got her done in seven jumps so we we're ready <laughs> to go i think i did 21 and the so it varies depending on the person or just the well, comfort they, or just what you're seeing the whole class will have relatively the same amount of jumps but the training cadre will evaluate their progression. So we won't transition to a new element until that class has it. So how did you feel going into that? 
Um, I was interviewed by ABC News yeah. <laughs> when I was doing rookie training, and I described it as uh, the most intense experience of my life. And it, it really was. It was physically demanding, no doubt. Um, but it was like I was learning new stuff every single day. So, so mentally. It was that uh, going home and studying and preparing, and I had tremendous support from my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend at the time, but. You know, she'd let me get home exhausted, <laughs> have food, and um, maybe two, three hours of studying and practicing wow. at home on top of the day. Did you have um, a mentor or somebody that you talked to prior to um, accepting the smoke jumper to kind of get an idea to help you through that mental pre- preparation? I did not. No, as a matter of fact, when I was on the hell attack, I went over to visit, and our base is really good about it. We want to um, invite people, show them around, give them some face-to-face time, but in this instance, no one was around or no one was at the front office. So I was just kind of poking my head around, and I went into the weight room, and it was just long-haired guy doing pull-ups with a 100-pound dumbbell strapped to his waist. And I'm like, oh. yeah, I'm out of here. You <laughs> like, see you later. Yeah. But I, I found out later that that really wasn't the most important thing at all. They were trying to scare the people coming in. Yeah, yeah he's just <laughs> a unique individual. Yes. Yeah. That too. Yeah, but um, no, I never had someone in that respect, you know, I, I really looked up to my hotshot superintendent, my squad bosses at the time, Tim Mason and Dion Burner. They taught me a tremendous amount about fighting fire. So I was never really worried about uh, what kind of firefighter I was, yeah. th- thanks to those men. Yeah, it's just getting into the, the smoke jumper role. Yeah. Yeah. Different. Yeah. All the different nuances that it has, it seems like. Yeah, you think you'd be intimidated never having jumped out of anything or the fear of heights, of all that stuff, but the training is so regimented, so drilled, so taught to be muscle memory, you're actually way more concerned about not doing it right in front of your trainers than the whole jumping out. So you're not really even thinking that you're doing like it. falling out into Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're like, I, yeah. I know how to do it. I've practiced how to do it. I've done it a thousand times. I just want to do it right. And when you're 3,000 feet above the ground, you don't have a ground resonance. So you don't have that, like, being on a ladder feeling. You really don't get oh. that. Um, oh. At least that's my experience, and other people have expressed the same sentiment, is you don't get a lot of that, like, ooh, I'm on heights, you know? Because I'll get that just like everybody else. If you're on the edge of the parking lot over here, and you're kind of looking over, yeah. and you like, yeah. get that <laughs> yeah. queasy feeling. But it's just so far, and, and you're moving probably, that yeah. you do, and you're thinking about all this other stuff. Yeah, you know, I don't know if other people use mantras. Uh, we have a jump count, and as that, as our aircraft procedure, my personal aircraft procedures progress, before I go out the door, I've probably said that jump count a dozen times in my head, and that's just, now it's like a mantra. It calms you down. You have that. and Is that secret, or can you share that? No, I, I, I don't know <laughs> if people do that or not. I can't, can't speak to the others, you know. But that's your process. So each person yeah. has a, probably their own process to get them focused and ready to get out the door. Certainly, yeah. The procedures are, are scripted. You know, they have to, they're evaluated on every proficiency jump for the duration of your career, and certainly when you're going through training. But uh, the actual, like, what's going through your head a few seconds? Yeah, I, I couldn't speak to what everybody's thinking of, but that's what I'm thinking of. And at the end of your training, um, yeah, was it just like a, just a big sigh of relief, like when it was done, and you're like, all right, I'm a, I'm a smoke jumper now? Um. My wife would say, like, I'm the king of delayed gratification, right? <laughs> like, I bought the Moxie Java Smoke Jumper brand coffee, and I'm not tasting that until I'm successful at rookie training kind gotcha. of thing. 
so it, it's been like that for me my my whole career. So I graduated training, but I wasn't really a real smoke jumper. And then I finished my first year, but well, I wasn't really a real smoke jumper. Oh, okay. Like 23 <laughs> years into it now, I'm like, all right, I'm almost there. <laughs> almost there. <laughs> so how did you work your way to base manager? Mm, I came through the training department. Our base is organized in, in five tiers. Uh, one is the loft. They're doing all our manufacturing and our parachute uh, riggers and stuff like that. One is the training department. They're doing fire and parachute training. Air ops handles the planes and the contracts. Operations does the day-to-day business, you know, getting you all the equipment you need. And crew soup is like our human capital management. Um, the, the I try to encourage people to get a taste for everything, and certainly every smoke jumper dabbles in the loft. Everybody learns to sew. Everybody learns to pack and to, and do that stuff. But I came up through training because I enjoyed teaching fire classes, like teaching some of the NWCG curriculum, and then that morphed into a little bit of parachute training, um, some fire refresher training. That was my pathway. And a little bit of where I work is is kind of a war of attrition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We we don't necessarily want everybody to be there for 23 years. (laughs) We try to encourage people to get out into fire management. So like a perfect smoke jumper career is like five to seven and you go be a FOSS or you go be an AFMO that maybe end up as the state AFMO, something like that would be the, in my mind, the best thing our organization could do for BLM fire. Taking that experience to management. Yeah. And before they're, before they retire and lose them completely. Yeah. And we're seeing some pretty exciting things nowadays. We have uh, three of our smoke jumpers involved in the BLM mentor pilot mentor program. So there's like a national shortage of pilots, whoever you talk to Southwest airlines, certainly in the government. Right. Now we're taking firefighters who've invested 10, 12 years into the, into the government are willing to stick around until they retire, and we're turning them from firefighters into pilots, growing our own, and, uh, yeah, we're really excited about it. That's, NAO that's pretty cool, cool transition. Cool. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of people go to the structure, from the, and, I'm, you know, we're just as proud as those mm-hmm. folks, too. They're still contributing to the community, and, you know, one person gets a job, and they kind of pave that road for other people to get a job. Trying to think of some other good examples. Um, well, there's a lot, a lot of avenues you can take. Certainly, yeah. And the, and the traditional route into fire management has been done numerous times, for sure. Yeah, and we've talked yeah. about that. I mean, just even in our, our normal jobs about recruitment and tell, letting folks know that, you know, always firefighting is not the only job we have in BLM fire. So that's even interesting in, as a smoke jumper. You don't always have to be one. Like, now you can be a pilot, too. There's an opportunity to take this other, this other path as yeah. well. And what a better place than NIFC to demonstrate that. You yeah. can literally walk out of one building and just start working your way down the parking <laughs> lot. <line. So laughs> exactly. Or you could work with the yeah. remote weather people. Exactly. Or you could come over to the NIC, you know, and become a dispatcher. And we've got three people over at NIC right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. Or external affairs. Yes. Yeah, you can come work with us. Yeah. I don't know if I'd ever jump out of a plane. Yeah, I don't think I would <laughs> go the opposite way either. Yeah. A little too old for that now, but <laughs> maybe in the younger years. So take us through a, like a like a t- typical day like like if you have a fire you know from the beginning of the day when you get ready and if you have a fire call what what happens Yeah, I'd start with no typical days. <laughs> right? Um if I was going to be a wise guy, sometimes I'd describe it to people as like, oh, it's countless days of monotony interrupted by moments of terror. <laughs> you know. But to be serious about your question, I would say we used to move around a lot. So you wake up in the morning in Ely, Nevada, you wouldn't know where you're going to bed that night. 
It could be Alaska, Colorado. I try to, as a manager to be very mindful of that and make those movements absolutely necessary because even though you're not home, if you've got some sense, if I'm not on a fire today, I'm probably going back to the jailhouse. I know I can get some Chinese food down the road. You know, that, that gives people a sense of comfort. So in this new paradigm where we're at, a typical day was I'd be wake up, I'd go for a run, I'd be like, whew, 6,800 feet, I can feel that. We'd have our roll call at 0800. The liaison officer, our spotter, would, has already contacted dispatch, and they'll let us know if there's any pending orders. If there's no pending orders, they'll say, okay, you can PT our, our PT hours from 08 to 9, for example, in the summer. Uh, the LO and the pilot go out to the plane. They ready the plane. They open up the outstation. The remainder come after their PT, usually do a store stop to get um, some hamburgers to grill that day. And then at 11 o'clock, we have our intel briefing. So we're covering the situation report and the smoke jumper status page and the daily, daily weather briefing. And, and you're just kind of on hold waiting for the next fire call that can come at any moment in the day. So the best thing you can do is keep your mind occupied. Uh, people do a lot of physical fitness, play cards. Uh, nowadays, things, a lot of things are on their tablets, on their their devices, but uh, back in the day, it used to be card games and Scrabble, and um, I see a lot of people, you know, reading good books. I see a lot of people doing the babble or trying to encourage people to try to find, like, one thing that actually improves you that day, um, and then you get the fire call, and you have about two minutes to get your jumpsuit on, get on that plane, and hopefully we're taxiing away in about six minutes. Two quick. minutes. <laughs> yeah, every that's pretty quick. Every rookie candidate that goes through that's part of their testing before they can pass is to be able to put that suit on in two minutes, mm. and not so much that they have to do it in two minutes, but they, we want them so familiar with that gear that they could do it in two minutes. Yeah, and it's not yeah. just the suit; it's all the your parachutes, your reserve chute, your yeah, your the whole meal chute. deal. Yeah, yeah. Pack. Now sometimes things move at the speed of dispatch. You're waiting for a knee yeah. board; they're gathering information. So I don't want to create this illusion like it's snap crackle pop every <laughs> single minute but sometimes it's go time yeah and that suit because <clears throat> we've been over there a couple of times how much does that suit weigh uh with the parachutes on over 100 pounds depending on how much uh extra gear people have stuffed in there it's it's well over 100 pounds and it's really warm call it the 100 pound snowmobile suit <laughs> yeah and so. then well and then you have pads too that you put on like knee pads and yeah so the actual suit itself custom. is constructed out of kevlar it's puncture resistant, and underneath that is like a motocross upper, upper body protection, and then we have like a hockey girdle, uh, mid waist protection, and then shin pads, uh, similar to motocross or, or catcher in a baseball team. And of course a helmet too, the helmets are um, like your snowboard or uh, speed skater type helmets. With a screen over it? Yeah, with a big cage on the front to uh, protect any sticks from poking you. <laughs> So have you ever come down onto a tree or something and had to? I've been fortunate that I've never treed up. I have crashed through <laughs> some trees, but made it to the ground. Um, we all learn, and initially in our rookie training, and every year we have a refresher on parachute letdown if you do get caught in a tree. And we've got some great new equipment. You know, we're constantly working with research and development to find the best new things to use. So now you can get out of that tree in, in you know, less than a minute with our new F3 Dissension device. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Very nice. Yes. 
So once you're once you're out, then what happens? Well, we're we're in the modern world now, right? So <laughs> the spotter is up there. They're coordinating with the pilot. They're doing mission planning, figuring out the distance. Are we going to have enough fuel to get there? Are we going to have to plan for alternative, you know, refueling en route? They're contacting the air attack if it's on scene, if not coordinating with other aerial resources. But they're also, like, when I started, it was paper maps. You get a paper map passed back with an X on it, and you're just kind of be looking at this topographical map. Now they're airdropping maps. Um, if they get that to you soon enough, the people in the back of the plane, they can open up their Avenza they can download while they still have cell coverage, the actual right there on the area, getting these great mapping programs. So that's what's happening when you're taxiing and when you first take off. Um, sometimes the fire's 10 minutes away, and, and there's just not time for all that to happen. So you get still gathering intel. If it's like a two-hour flight, you kind of rack out. You know, you start climbing to eight, 10,000 feet in the plane. It gets a little sleepy time. and <laughs> You're in that <laughs> big suit. Yeah. It's hot. Yeah. yeah. But... Um, yeah, eventually you're up, and just like when you drive to a fire or fly in a helicopter, you're starting to, okay, what are my fuels? You know, what kind of resources are out here? Where's my water sources? Yeah. Checking it out. And then once we get on scene, the spotters, um, if we're the first on scene, is calling a size up in the dispatch, and now all eyes are glued on the windows. Everybody's looking at there. Everybody's looking for a jump spot. Where's going to be a good place to land? Everybody's looking, okay, how am I going to get out of here? You know, where's our demob route? Are there any, any, any water nearby, anything like that? Um, when you guys um, jump, how many are in a, a load that goes on the plane? So our, we have multiple different kinds of ships. Um, typical load for us is eight person. We've integrated the Dash 8 into the BLM fire, and that can hold up to 16. Uh, down south, we'll put 12 on it. Um, in addition to those, you can pack a mini warehouse worth of goods on there if you wish. So. But- but that's not every load. That's just depending on where you're going, right? The yeah, fire. that's just the load that's on the plane. Um, the spotter and the first in the door and dispatch and the duty officer, where the dispatch is communicate, communicating with, will determine how many people do we want to staff on this fire. And it's usually it's kind of a no-brainer. You roll there and you have a large-scale fire that's burning rapidly, what we call a gobbler. You're going to put all, all the bodies on the plane on it. But you roll on a single tree, it's going to be a two-person fire. And it's always at least two people, right? Yeah. There's been some inadvertent one-person pre- one <laughs> fires, but that wasn't on purpose. Yeah. You, they, um, <clears throat> for one reason or another, number two couldn't go, and number one called it. But that only heard of that twice in my career. Yeah. They used to be called two-manners. They're called two-personers. We did have a few <laughs> no-manners in my career, too, which was pretty cool. And how does that how does that work? So you have a spotter in the plane that working with the pilot. Mm-hmm. And then you're looking at the air currents. How does that all work with the pilot and the oh, yeah. spotter? So they're, they're practicing CRM, right? That cockport, cockpit resource management or crew resource management. So the spotter gets the information from dispatch on a kneeboard. And on that kneeboard, you have your coordinates where the fire's at. You have the, your um, frequencies that you're communicating right. with, you know, who you're going to talk to air to air. You're going to talk air to ground. What's going to be the best frequency for the, when the people get to the ground? What repeater can they use to talk to dispatch? Um, they're going to have the, the call signs of the other aircraft that might be responding and some or any ground resources that are on there. Maybe, if you're lucky, a little intel about the fire itself. You know, fires located in wilderness area, chainsaws approved kind of intel. So the spotter gets that, usually prints out. I like to print out three copies. Others like to airdrop them. Give one to the jumper in the door, one for myself, one for the pilot. We head out on our mission. I've plotted my coordinates into my foreflight. I've also helped the pilot, if he needs it, plotting it into the GPS in the aircraft. 
start plugging in the frequencies that we plan to use. I'll make a little sticky note, put it on the yoke of the plane, and let the pilot know when I go in the back, FM1, which is the radio, is going to be on this channel. FM2 is on this channel. FM3 is on this channel. I may ask you to change FM2 to this channel. Like, okay, you, know, you get all this, like, pre-mission. You want to make everything about this emerging event from less of an emergency and more towards, like, a planned event. Um, and, of course, I'll remind them what I've seen on that kneeboard. Like, hey, we've got four uh, single-engine air tankers responding to this air attacks on scene. Don't let me forget to call air attack at 12 miles out. So you've got some, um, you know, we're mandated uh, to manage a fire traffic area as we enter that fire traffic area, if there's aerial resources and aerial management on scene, we are required to contact them and be granted access. So we start playing the scripts that you hear with the air attacks. I'm at 12 miles out. I call them, let them know, you know, this is jumper 49, 12 miles to the north, inbound, 7,900 feet. They call back and they let us know, all right, we're, out, we're on altimeter 3319. You're cleared in, 9,005, air attacks at 10,005. So you're, now you're managing that airspace. You integrate there, let them know how much time you have, how much fuel you have, and they start working you in with the tankers. The air attacks on scene, they're making a vertical stack, right? They've got low-level helicopters. They've got the air tankers. Jump ships can fit in there, and they're above it all, kind of keeping an eye on everything. Um, we can break up our mission, and air attacks are getting way better at understanding how a jump ship can integrate into that aerial management Used to be they were pretty hands-off. They are like, oh, the jumpers show up. i got to shut everything down. Now they understand, like, I can do two seat drops, and my jumpers can go low level and check out a spot. Okay, we got a spot. We can pull out. Now I can do two more seat drops. The jumpers can come back in, throw some streamers, get an idea of the wind, get the jumpers out, pull out. Now my helicopter can do some bucket work. I still got an hour as a jump ship hanging out, and I come back and deliver the cargo. And definitely um, impressed with the air attacks these days and how they can integrate us in different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, things are changing. That's a lot of coordin that's a lot of coordination for sure. Yeah, yeah, they're they're there. pros yeah. for sure. So then you you're on the ground, uh, hopefully landing in that jump spot that you <laughs> identified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then what happens? So we land in the ground, we immediately begin packing up our stuff, we communicate with the plane, hey, we'd like the cargo at the fire. Let's say the fire is five miles away or whatever. We'll take the cargo up by the fire or we'll take the cargo in the spot, which is more typical. Cargo's delivered. Uh, the jumper in charge is making contact with dispatch. We always want to have that, that radio contact with dispatch is ideal. If we can't get that, we'll deliver them a sat phone, and they'll make contact with dispatch. The jump ship won't leave until they have contact either with uh, an IC on the ground or dispatch. Uh, the remainder of the jumps, jumpers gather all the gear, gather all the cargo, centrally locate it, you know, make sure it's in a safe spot, preferably like on a cold black edge or something like that, or a secure vegetation-free spot. And then we'll gather for our, our briefing. And the jumper in charge will relay those frequencies. You know, they'll establish the objectives for the fire. They'll establish the incident command structure and how they're going to run the fire. And then we search and go after it and split up and do what we can. And hopefully successful to keep it small. Yeah, and 85% plus of the time we do. And it, it works pretty well. But it's not uncommon to be on a 3,000-acre fire with you and another person flapping flapping grass <laughs> yeah. saying, oh, boy, I see somebody else today. Yeah. Yeah. So most, where do you spend most of your time fighting fire in the lower 48? Yeah. So the, the season kind of progresses, as you know. Mm -hmm. You know, early season, um, we end up, a lot of our uh, people end up in Alaska supporting their mission. 
And but by mid-May to June, now we're starting to staff our outstations in the southern half of the Great Basin. So you're talking Ely, Nevada, Cedar City, Utah. Uh, we drift into New Mexico, Grand Junction, Colorado. And then as the season progresses, as the monsoons come in, we, we drift north and start finding ourselves in Idaho Falls, Twin Falls, Boise, uh, Burns, Oregon, Lander, Wyoming. So we, we just kind of move up as the fire season progresses. But we are, you know, national. We fight fire in, in every western state. Plenty of time in California, Oregon, Washington, Montana. So how does fire differ in Alaska, fighting fire in Alaska, as compared to the lower 48? We have so many resources down here in the lower 48. Um, so many ways to get you logistics. You know, so many ways to get food out to you, whether by ground. Um, you can always walk off your fire if you need to. Alaska is very different that way. You, know, you go out and you might be at, you know, the only resource out there. And the only way to get you food and water is going to be from a jump, a smoke jumper jump ship. And the getting out of there, it might be a long boat ride to some remote airstrip, back to some remote spike base. It could be a three-day process just getting back in the hopper. So I guess that would be what I would consider the biggest difference is that the remote nature of it. You know, people underestimate Alaska. If you were to superimpose that state on the western United States, it covers nearly the entire western United States. Right. It's this huge state, but you always just kind of... It's just out there. It's just out there, and you <laughs> shrink it down to, like, New Mexico, right? Yeah. But it's it's a massive state. and um, A lot of remote areas, too. Yeah, you fly for two, three hours yeah. over nothing but tundra, and you, you, it occurs to you, I'm not walking out of this. <laughs> you know, once I'm there, I'm committed. There's not very many roads. for a couple months. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of roads. Yeah, for sure. And I'm certainly not the expert. Um, I've been a basin jumper my whole career, been up there many years, but certainly not the expert on what makes Alaska different. Yeah. Well, just the, that that's a big fact, though, that it's just a lot of country to cover. Yeah. What is your favorite part of firefighting? I was thinking about this question. I don't know. Am I allowed to let it out of the bag that we get the questions ahead of time? <laughs> it's okay. <sighs> I was thinking about that. <clears throat> you know, every day I'm walking around laughing, smiling. I mean, there's, you know, it's a job. There's bad th bad days, bad times. But uh, I'm always laughing and yucking it up with a lot of people of the same mindset. You know, we all, we're all just kind of, I don't want to go as far to say the family, but we're, we're pretty close-knit. I really like going to work with the people I work with. Um, almost to a T, almost to every single person. So I guess that would be the best part. It's just I get along with everybody, and I get to be the quote-unquote boss, but I still laugh and slap each other on the back. And, and even the youngest person that comes into our organization, or I shouldn't say the youngest, but the newest person in our organization, they get to be my incident commander on a fire, and they get to tell me what to do, and it's, it's super cool to have that relationship. You know. um, where I work, people come in with a ton of experience. They're super motivated. They don't need to be motivated. Um, they're competent. They're uber competent. Most people are way smarter than me. There's no, like, having a leadership style that's directive. That just doesn't happen. It's not going to be that way. I mean, you can certainly be curt when things are of uh, time is of the essence, but it's got to be collaborative. It's the only way you can do things, which is really neat because now you're getting I had so many new good ideas and so many brains kicking in all the stuff, and you work towards them. Sometimes it's not so neat because you get 
all di- six different ways to skin that cat <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't really matter you know but yeah so the people to to make it how many people succinct. work at that base sorry how many our, people work at our that org chart 75 being a base manager i mean how does that different than being uh just a part of the crew it's always been really important to our base that the base manager still jumps fires spots fires we want to maintain that connect we want to keep it real, keep it relevant, know what problems people are seeing on the ground. So that's how it's similar, and we'll always maintain that as for as long as I'm around and I, and I can save my – the people coming behind me feel the same way, feel strongly, and our management feels strongly, how important that is. But I do a lot less of it. Uh, my job, we have, as I mentioned before, we have the five tiers. My job is to coordinate all those efforts that they're putting forward towards the BLM fire program mission they might they don't have to understand what that is I I get that delivered to me from my bosses I just have to coordinate their efforts so that what we're doing meets that BLM directive meets that fire mission fire objectives it's more the coordination part of things for for certain yeah Um, so when you have five different departments and they're all working super hard and they're super motivated they might think what they're doing is the most important thing that's going on right then at that moment. So it's about getting them to understand how their two efforts have to mesh and push forward for the, for the bigger goal, I guess. That makes sense. And you kind of have to know a little bit about everything because the different departments are so specialized. I mean, when I think about what the smoke jumping base is doing, where our operations department is, is a third tier dispatch center. So they're running a dispatch center in addition to doing fire operation specialist stuff every single day. Our loft is manufacturing life-protecting equipment. They're doing stuff that you see in the private industry. They're inventing parachute delivery systems. You know, they're mass senior and master riggers. They have these FAA qualifications, and they're, they're literally in there inventing parachuting equipment. And improving what you have. Yeah, and improving it and, you know, monitoring what I have, what we have for equipment, making determinations when we see a, an abnorm- abnormality in equipment. Um, very cerebral stuff, you know. And then our crew suit, they are hired. We hire about 15 people a year, not to mention the people internally that are moving up. So they're doing hundreds of interviews a year. They have to be these human capital experts. They have to understand all the nuances uh, application of the Douglas factors and any sort of disciplinary actions. And, and our air ops, they have to understand all the contracting. They operate like a unit aviation manager. <clears throat> so you got all these areas of expertise, and I have to know what they're doing. I don't have to know how to do it, but I have to know what they're doing. Right. And I have to um, know when I have to defer to their expertise and when I have to make a decision. So I guess that would be the, the challenge of being the base manager. Or, in a nutshell, what my job is. Yeah. Yeah. So you have been in fire for quite a while. What kind of changes have you seen, like in fire in general, maybe in the in the environment even? Mm-hmm. I'd say from what I've witnessed from management, and when I say management, I think about like uh, FA three hundred over at NIFSI or fire management at the state level, the assistant. They're making a very concerted effort to keep in touch with what's going on on the ground. You know, this, this statement, boots on the ground, take care of the boots on the ground, that didn't exist 25 years ago. There was a disconnect. 
in the BLM at least, they're making a lot of effort to stay in touch with that. What is relevant? You've got the fire operation group, which is they want to hear from these committees, like what are the problems? And then they're going to start looking for a solution. It felt like, and this is, it's a little hard to compare because back when you're early firefighter, you know, you've been provided enough top cover. You don't really know what the heck's going <laughs> yeah, on. Right. But it felt like back then they didn't care what the ground problems were. They were dealing with their own stuff. Um, now I feel like they, they make a very concerted effort to tap into the ground resources and work from the bottom up towards solutions. And I mean, if we look at this, where we're at right now, you can be in fire for two or three years and get a career seasonal. You can have a career and feel confident about that after three years. Like when we all came through fire, 10 years, you didn't even think about it before 10 years. And to get that, you'd have to bounce all over the country to hopefully get a job. And now you can actually like get a semblance of a lifestyle here. You know, I hear all this talk about uh, work-life balance nowadays. We're starting to see actually practical application of that. Understanding, yeah, we're going to need like 50% more firefighters so that people can have a family. I mean, that it takes a toll on them being on the road and stuff like that. So if we can just squeak in a little bit of time off in the summer for some people, it makes all the difference. And, and having that, uh, that delicate sense of that, and not to mention the, you know, the incentives, the pay incentives and the retention bonuses <coughs> and stuff like that. Firefighters are, are happy right now, I think. My group's pretty happy. I think, <coughs> I think also, too, just um, we have a voice. I remember being back on the crew or engine, like, yeah, you just head down and dug you didn't ask questions, and now they want to hear from you. They want to hear what you have to say and voice things. So I think that's a big or if thing, you too. you feel uncomfortable yeah. with the situation you're going yep. into or that yeah. kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, you, you are 100% right. And I'm going to give us a couple of things to bleep out, but it was asses and elbows <laughs> yes. when, when we grew up on the cruise, right? Yes. And it was directive leadership style. But now, no, the advent of the AAR, the giving people a voice. Yeah. yeah. And it's powerful. You know, it's, it's helping people stay safe. Yeah. That's a, so important in what we do because it's such a dangerous job. So. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's true. And yeah, just. We've learned so much, I guess, too, um, through the years, how to treat people better <laughs> and make them feel better about their what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how about the fire behavior um, in the environment? Just I'm pretty reluctant to get on that train about fires getting bigger. And obviously, in my opinion, there's a clear evidence of climate change. And that's going to affect fires. But then we have a year like this where we never really get out of PL3. So I think there's too many variables there to really put, say, oh, yeah, they're all getting worse and they're all, it's all going to get nothing but better. But if you look at the, the statistics, how many of the last 10 years have been the most, the record fire seasons? So, yeah, overall things are getting worse. What I will say is definitely uh, palatable is fire season is longer. And typically we have a hard time getting everyone on the road in the past before July. Now by mid-May, they're active and they're rolling into October. And um, that's, that's, that's a challenge. That duration, it's not so much the work. All the people can work. They can work all day and they can work every day and they can put in their shifts and take their days off and they can do that all summer. But it's a big difference between asking them to do that for three and a half months and asking them to do that for five and a half months and asking them to do that for seven months. And that, that's yeah. what I would say would be the most concrete and i think it's um also non-stop too 
It's not like you come home. I mean, before you come home, you work 14, have 14 days, and then you're having your home for a week or so. Now it's like almost a lot of these crews are like back to back. It's just constant for four to six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. So with all that, is uh, what do you see for the future of smoke jumping? I mean, what and and why would somebody maybe want to look at becoming a smoke jumper? So when smoke jumping first emerged, uh, the the notion was, hey, it's taken people days to hike into these fires, you know, and they're super remote, and we want to get somebody there who's fresh and can put them out and that sort of thing. Um, there's the advent of new ways to get there. There's helicopters. There's a lot more roads. There's things like that. So when I hear um, people come in and give a tour of my base and they're like, they go to the most remote fires, and it's like, that's not really that important. It's about getting there quickly. It's about acknowledging that, like, that aggressive initial attack, that rapid response, and that starts at dispatch, and it starts with that duty officer making a very uh, quick decision, educated quick decision to how to staff that. You get there soon, and I have no problems jumping roads. They often make very good jump spots. But I've personally witnessed on more than one occasion where 30 minutes makes a difference, and it evolves from the incipient stage to now it's off off to the races. So getting there quickly is kind of the message I try to deliver. Getting there, um, if you go around and ask every unit out there, hey, who's a first or second year firefighter? You see a lot of hands go up. We want to show up with people that have experience. So with my program, we will always try to hold that. We want you to have a breadth of experience, preferably a diversity of experience, but we want you to have some years under your belt so you can operate as an independent entity and then when you join forces with the other responding uh, modalities, you can lead up. You can show them how it should be done. You can help over, provide oversight, provide leadership on the fire in that incident command structure. So I think we're, if I was going to put it, encapsulate the last <laughs> 80 years of smoke jumping, we've gone from jumping some remote small to fire to having the capability of jumping any fire Still having the strength to dig line, cut line, but also having the um, experience to, to run that fire of any size. Which continues to make the smoke jumping program a viable yeah. fire program. Yeah. Too. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to go on a tangent here, if you will tolerate we that. like tangents. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've always been very disappointed that the different ways of fighting fire are pitted against one another. And I see it at the highest level of management. They want smoke jumpers to not like hot shots, engine people to not like hell attack. I don't get that. I absolutely don't understand that methodology of motivation. And a lot of times with my program, you get people needling you. Why do you have to do this? This is so crazy. It's just, it's, I don't understand this. Why would you parachute into anything? Um, so they try to pit you against one another, like, well, we're going to get a bigger and better helicopter and put you out of business. And it's like, well, how about we just work together and we're both going to fight fire, <laughs> yeah. you know? So I try to encourage the people in my organization. It's like integrate with those other resources. We are all on the same team. There's absolutely no reason I don't want an engine to show up on my fire. They have water. Yeah. <clears throat> they, they have, have more people that can swing tools. <laughs> they get to drive me out of here. It'll be a shorter walk. They'll haul my stuff out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I get pretty disappointed when I see or hear things like, well, you guys aren't going to exist in 20 years. It's like I heard that when I first started, and the people that worked before me heard it. Yeah. When I think about 
all the different ways to go, all the different modalities of fight and fire, think about what makes a BLM whole, what makes it strong. We want to draw from these firefighting resources. They move up. They become external affairs. They become fire management. Well, you want everyone you have access to, and different people are going to be interested in fighting fire on an engine, and different people are going to be interested in fighting fire on a helicopter, and different people are going to be fighting interested in, in smoke jumping. I want to draw from all that different interest. To me, that's the diversity you're looking for. You know, just people are interested in different things. Why would you cut one out? And then for smoke jumping, I've got a group of people that will do anything to get to your fire. They will literally jump out of a plane to get to your fire. <laughs> yes. So I kind of like those group of people. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't even have to ask that question then that I was going <laughs> to ask at the end about what makes you want to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. But I think you've kind of described it yeah. right there. Yeah, well, you, you've both <laughs> been in airplanes and helicopters. You know there's no such thing as a perfectly good yep. one. No, there's so not. I like having a parachute. Yeah. But also, it's kind of like uh, America. You, Everybody wants to drive a car. Everybody, We could have a great public transportation system, but we, everyone kind of prefers to drive their car. I like to drive my own, get my own way to work, you know, and fly that parachute. Yeah. yeah. So how many jumps have you been on? Um, 483. Wow. Is that, oh, well, what's, what's a, is there a typical number of jumps that a jumper gets in a career or in like an, in my, at my base, that's getting up there on the top level of how many you've had in a career. You got to be around for a while. There's, um, because I went into kind of management, I started getting less fire jumps. We've got some, uh, some smoke jumpers that work for us that are pushing 300 fire jumps. My, my numbers are jumps, practice jumps, and fire jumps. Oh, combined. Yeah. yeah. So we still have people working for us that are in that six 700 range of total jumps. The most ever by a smoke jumper was Wally Wasser, and I I believe he had 889-ish oh, okay. was the total. So if you compare it to, like, skydiving, it's nothing. Yeah. You know, they're getting tens of thousands of jumps, the long-term skydivers. But you get above 500, you're probably in, in like, the 10%-ish that still seems like a lot. That is, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Your knees. That makes me. No, I'm just want kidding. To ask, have you ever been injured in a jump? I've had a few bumps or bruises. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, that's it. Yeah, that's what say. <laughs> no, uh, it's you know, I'm I'm happy to talk about my personal experiences, but it's kind of an oddity. Yeah. I had a couple uh, pretty serious accidents. But it's pretty rare. I think our accident rate is about, well, I don't want to make up statistics, but it's, it's pretty rare. You can go your whole career with nothing more than, you know, a few uh, bumps and bruises. And I think that's typical for, all, like, all positions in fire. I mean, you can <clears throat> be in hotshot crew and same thing, engine, tele. I mean, they're all different. They have all the same stuff. Yeah, it's not a zero-sum game. I no. mean, as we just learned again, things can come out of nowhere yeah. and get you um, – because our folks maintain really good physical fitness, they bounce back quick if they do get injured. And there's very rare we actually see like a on-the-line firefighting injury. Yeah, it seems like, a, well, and that doesn't stop you from continuing what you're doing. Right. Here. <laughs> yeah, I talk to a lot of people about risk management and um, a lot of safety officers telling me all the things I'm not doing safe enough. And I try to convince them, I'm like, I promise you, my legs are more important to me than you. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to do everything I can to preserve myself and the people that work for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's part of your job. 
Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Probably the most important part of my job. So what has been your most memorable experience? Um, my most memorable experience wasn't as a smoke chopper. It was probably as a, as a hot shot. And um, early in my hot shotting, and we, had, we were working into a 30-hour shift. It had cruised through the evening into the next day. It was about 4 o'clock, and we were just still digging, digging, digging. We finally punched out of the pinion juniper, got into more sage. So now we're starting to make some hay and get some ground. And uh, we actually tied it in. We, like, got all the way around the fire. One hotshot crew took one flank. Another took another flank. Dug for, you know, upwards of 20 hours, and we tied it in. And air attack um, was flying overhead. I think it was air attack or maybe it was a lead plane. And you could hear him over the radio. I wasn't carrying the radio, but you could hear it on my squad boss's radio. Uh, you guys tied it in. Great job. You know, amazing. You caught it. And it was like the first sense you caught it. And I remember sitting down, and I have a picture of it, and I'm looking at the guy that was digging in front of me. And, you know, you had that perfect uh, Nevada skyline in the in the evening with the pink clouds, wispy pink clouds against the light blue sky. And, and just having that moment of, like, satisfaction yeah i don't know how to explain it um about as close as you can get to you know just touching the face i guess yeah i think i think we've heard that um that's the same story from a lot of people just differently on the most memorable times of like just being out on public lands and like having that the sunset or the sunrise or just ah like accomplishment and so I've almost, I think everybody has said that in a different, in some different way or fashion. Yeah. And peace. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all retreat to the, well, a lot of people retreat to the public lands for that sense of peace. It really felt like it was deserved at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you catch a fire like that. Yeah. Like, I have just saved some. Yeah. You just did something right. That's yeah. the whole idea of getting <laughs> yeah, into yeah. it. Right. I just want to do some good. Right. Yeah. yeah and that public servants, that's what we are in. That's why we're here. I mean, that's totally. just the the bottom line of why we come in here for sure and give it all and i thought you said it well it's like you have to have a lot of heart to get and yeah. uh, you know it's that's uh, how it is in a, with a lot of jobs most yeah. jobs you're not going to be successful unless your heart's in it for sure yeah and, and in this career it's so refreshing that you know yours is in it and you, the person sitting next to you there at the theirs is in it too and it, that's pretty cool Well, is there anything else that you would like to tell us about your career or smoke jumping in general that we might have missed? I think we've been around a lot of stuff. I noticed <laughs> one of your questions was, um, what is the greatest, what's the hardest part of this job? Right. Yeah. And uh, um, I'll just answer that because I thought about that a lot. And it, it it's the tragedy that accompanies this job. It's working a job that, will never be a zero injury, zero fatality job and, and coming to terms with that. And when you're in fire, as long as we all have been, you get personally touched by that. So as a manager now, <clears throat> I look to a quote from Tom Boatner, and he was asked by the Wildland uh, Lessons Learned Center, how do you become comfortable with making decisions that affect people's lives? And his answer was, uh, you never become comfortable and you never should. And it should weigh on you like a thousand pounds on your back. And you should never stop asking yourself, have I done everything I can to create this safe environment for the people that are in my charge? And you kind of process that quote 
and then come realizing with humility that you can't do everything. So I, I guess that would, to answer that one question that we didn't get around to would be that's the greatest, uh, the hardest part of the job is living with the fact that no matter what decisions you make, you can't control everything. Right. And that's that's part of life. Yeah. Too, oh, yeah. Unfortunately. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's just. It just hits home a little bit harder sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And like we were talking earlier, I mean, the wildland fire community is so small. It doesn't, I mean, you, you work five years and you know people, you work 25 years. I mean, you know a lot more people and it's just so small and tight knit. So I think that's the cool part about it, but it's also the hard part. Right. Well, on that somber note, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, it's it's real. It's it's real. So what we deal with on a daily basis, and yeah, hope, for hope sure, not to deal with. Yeah, and I think because there is that gravity, mm-hmm. that creates the opposite, right? That's the levity. That's why it, it's so fun to go to a party with a bunch of your firefighter and brethren. That's why there's so many high fives and so many good games and you know so many get-togethers and so many times people pitch in to paint each other's house and you know you you just you all share a very serious nature and then that affords you an opportunity to really uh, connect when things are just having fun. Yeah. Well, thanks Phil. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. That's a lot yeah. of talking. Yeah, it was great. No, it's good to explain what, what you do as a smoke jumper. I don't think a lot of people really know, you know, it's, they're always saying, you know, this is the elite firefighters, but you're just, you're just a firefighter. You're jumping out of a plane yeah. with a lot of experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we try to steer away from that elite to specialize. Yes. You're specialized. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and you've, you've given us a little bit of a look at that today and we appreciate it. My and pleasure. You're taking the time to join us for our ninth episode. And, um, yeah, we really appreciate all you were doing to help protect lives and property and and the natural resources we work in. Yeah, and I appreciate what um, you all are doing in your office. Get that message out. Let people know out there in, in the world that, hey, this is a great career. It's very rewarding. You work with a ton of great people, and we don't have that mechanism to get that message out as much as you do, and you're, you're all doing a really good job of it. Thanks. Yeah. We would like yeah. to think so. Yeah. Like, by some of this <clears> stuff, <throat> we were hoping that people would listen and say, hey, you know, this might be a, a cool job to get into or can make a career out of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, like with everyone's perspective, everyone helps everyone, tells a story, and that's what we're trying to do is tell the story about the BLM fire program. All the different aspects of the fire program. And to learn more about the BLM fire program or NIFSI, please visit our website at www.nifsi.gov. If you have questions, comments, or topic suggestions for future podcasts, email them by visiting nifsi.gov website and scroll down to the contacts use wildfire matters podcasts in the subject line remember follow us on blm fire on facebook twitter and instagram yeah and thank you all for listening please join us next time when we hope to spark a conversation with dr patty o'brien um, she is our uh, critical incident stress manager management coordinator um, hopefully to discuss more about you know firefighters health and well-being and touched a little bit on that and so we're going into that time of year where we're kind of coming down from the active fire season and decompressing and so it might be hopefully a good conversation with her until Until then then, stay stay safe and be wildfire wildfire aware aware.